0: This is Jeremy Corbell,
1: and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by ZenCaster. ZenCaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio-quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio-quality sound, chat, and footnotes. All running right from your browser, so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO podcast. A huge month of May kicks off with, uh, I want to say, the one and only documentary filmmaker of the acclaimed Hunt for the Skinwalker and Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers, among other things, Mr. Jeremy Corbell. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me on, man.
1: It's been a long time coming, Jeremy. So let's get straight into it. And and I want to know because I've I've seen your your documentaries and followed your work, of followed the Instagram posts and the the appearances on news networks. But how did you first get involved in the topic of of UFOs?
0: Yeah, well, I think like most people, I was just curious about this mystery. Right? It, it's it's an uncharted territory. We are all like cartographers. We're creating maps of like how to engage this phenomenon that appears to have been with humanity since the beginning of Recorded Human History. I mean, it's like this huge mystery. But, you know, I'm just a kid. I'm 13 years old. They hear on the radio the voice of Bob Lazar, George Knapp. And, you know, I was just listening. But really, it was that it was that moment that, that Bob Lazar described the propulsion systems of these craft, like how he said that they work through gravity amplification. And, and the thing that really flipped my script was every type of propulsion that we have from rockets to roller skates, you push something out the back and you go forward. But he described a gravity well. So he described this idea of like if you put a, a bowling ball on a mattress and you push your fist down on the mattress and the bowling ball falls to your fist – you know, that, this idea that these craft, that they fall into time and space, they fall into place. I mean, it, it was so odd. And I, I, like everybody else, I wanted to know, is this guy legit? Is he telling the truth? So that's what initially, as I like to say, weaponized my curiosity where, where I was like, okay, I, I want to find out. But look, I'm 13 years old. This is just something I heard on the radio. I never thought for a second that I would get any closer to the truth. And, you know, life has it that it's a curvy road, man. So, so that's what sparked my interest. But really, I was a mixed martial athlete. That, that's all I did my whole life. That's all I thought I would ever do my whole life. And, but, you know, life had other plans for me. And, uh, you know, the, the short of the story is, you know, my camera became my passport. It's like I realized when I, I got a little 5D camera that did video for my wedding and it was like this thing that I, I could point at people and all of a sudden they would tell me stuff they didn't tell their families, you know? So that was kind of the the initial genesis of me getting uh, active in the field, seeking answers was I just started pointing cameras at people. And uh, with that said, you know, I I waited, I think George Knapp ghosted me for like two years, you know, <laughs> I kept emailing, but respectfully kept emailing, yeah. calling I don't know how long an answer you want. But one day his producer called me and he says, hold for George Knapp. And then this is after two years of me trying to get a hold of him. And I was like, what, what, wait. And he goes, look, do you want a piece of advice? I'm like, yes, please. And he says, know your questions, ask them directly and go. He's a busy man, doesn't have a lot of time. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, I was doing art at the time in LA. My hands were all had paint on them. I'm like holding the phone like this. This is George Knapp. And what's so funny is he still answers the phone like that, even though he sees my photo come up on his iPhone. <laughs> this is George Knapp. I'm like, now you're just bragging, you know? Yeah. So that's how I got started in it. And, you know, luckily, uh, George has been a great mentor to me, as people know. And and uh, I've been able to look at these things and meet these people directly. Obviously, I've been able to establish great sources from within the military and outside of the military. So I guess the moral of this uh, long story is, if I can do it, if I can contribute to the UFO knowledge, to to writing this map, right, of what we understand now and and where we're going, like, literally, anybody can do it.
1: (laughs) I I will attest to that. And two years to the day, almost, of the podcast being released, like, speaking to yourself, George, Lou Elizondo, a a lot of great names in, in ufology and UFOs. It's been fantastic. And you've you carved out quite a name for yourself in a relatively short space of time as well. But what's helped you do that, like you say, was you're, you're getting your foot in the door with George Knapp. How did you develop that relationship? So you've bugged him for two years. He's finally got on the phone with you. What do you do to keep that relationship going that you've got to the place you are now?
0: Yeah, well, so I had to make a lot of inroads, to the point where my call was worthy of a response, you know, so I didn't wait. I didn't ask for permission. You know, I started calling people. I started filming with people. I, I filmed for seven years with, with John Lear, you know, just to hear his story to hear, cause he, he was, I mean, if we're talking about the godfather, of the conspiracy, the people, the wildest theories, you know, the late John Lear was, was that guy. Uh, so I think where it all kind of started coming together. Is it, I put in the work, I put in the effort. Look, I'm not a qualified filmmaker. I'm not a. I wasn't even a filmmaker at the time. I had never made a film. You know, then my first one got on Netflix. I was. There, it's luck in a way, but but also like that's where opportunity meets your ability to to grab hold. So, I, I think the 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 important aspect of this is that you have to take steps forward, and and you need to try to find your angle in coming into this field to create the opportunity for more information rather than just uh, absorbing, receiving, reviewing, and listening to information. You know, become active. Man, if everybody on UFO Twitter, instead of just commenting negatively or positively on what people have done, if they take that energy and they put it into proactive work, Man, we're going to be in a really good space. We need a variety of minds, a variety of opinions, perspectives, and people putting that effort in. So, you know how I developed that relationship and those relationships. You know, it's all through trust. You 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 show good work. You show genuine interest if you are genuinely interested. And, and then you pursue it doggedly. And so I'd say that's what happened. George Knapp and I are friends now. We, you know, we, We've worked on a number of projects together. But really, that just took time and effort to show, like, hey, I'm really interested. This is something that with Bob Lazar, he would never have a movie made about him. He didn't want a movie made about him. It took me years. I mean, you see an hour and a half movie. We're talking nine years of work. Easy. So uh, I think earning the trust of people is through your actions. You know, you know, you know, also part of talent secrets is, is learning how to keep them, yeah. learning how not to break trust. I mean, I know people hate hearing that, but it's true. You, you know, you need to learn when to when it is an important time to talk and when it's not.
1: I think re- that's a nice way to stop that sentence, actually. <laughs> um, I think recently we've associated yourself with George because you've been almost partners in crime over the last year or two in terms of releases and podcasts and, and information coming out. But before that, you've been heavily associated with the aforementioned Bob Lazar. Do you remember the first time you spoke to Bob Lazar and what that was like?
0: Oh, I, I sure do. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, imagine so. You know, you're a kid and you heard this and you're interested, but all you want to know is, is he telling the truth? Because that means everything. Is, is, is Bob Lazar a liar? Is he an honest guy? You know, in, in, in the totality of his life, there's a lot of clues to this. I, I do remember the first time that I met Bob Lazar and it was a really kind of happenstance meeting. Although I put myself in that position where that happenstance meeting would, would occur. And what I was doing was I was filming with John Lear and out of the blue, you know, Lazar called him and basically said, I'm going to come over and say hi to my buddy, John. And out of respect, because I had been filming with John for years, I put away all my cameras, you know, I was like, that's inappropriate. But the world had only heard besides George Knapp and, and the, the news reports he did and the small amounts, it was like, you couldn't get a lot out of Bob. He just didn't want anything to do with it. You know, he he does not seek the limelight, never has. You know, he was kind of the, the big foot of ufologies. Hard to film, hard to record. But I, I didn't want to pressure somebody because if what he said was true, you know, this is like just digging up all this stuff in his past. I mean, he had been berated by the UFO community for so long, by the U.S. government. He had been threatened. Whether you believe it or not, it's, it's true. Everybody involved, I've spoken with everybody involved, whether I put them on record or not. And uh, he comes in and it was like, he was talking with John and there was just this moment. And I was like, hey man, look, as a fan of like hearing your account, I, I haven't decided if I think it's true or not true, but, but I but I'm interested in the truth. The world could use like three more minutes of you talking. Is it possible that you let me bring in my cameras, push record, And just give everybody a few more minutes directly from you because otherwise the world's going to twist it. They already have. That's obvious, right? Mm -hmm. Just trying to assassinate your character, saying all these weird things about you that aren't true. And he said yes. And so that was the first piece that I put out, which is that few minutes of Balbazar just telling you from his perspective, his account, what he experienced. And then it took many years after that. I, I always let him know, I was here if he wanted to tell his story from his words, clear up the record, and let people hear it from him directly and not just through a game of telephone. And obviously over time, it was not an easy ride. It was a rough journey, but uh, he let me do it. And, And the thing he let me do is show his life, who he was with complete and total access to anybody I wanted to speak with, like literally hand me your phone. Let me start calling people. Give me that box of tapes. You know, just let me take them and digitize them. He had zero reservation. I mean, zero reservation. At that point, he says, okay, let, let's let do this. You want to know the truth. Let's see if we can get there. Here's what I got. Here's what I know. I'm curious too, if we can prove any of this.
1: The Bob Lazar story is wonderfully documented in, area 51 and flying saucers it's on netflix here in the uk and multiple streaming services worldwide people should check it out we don't have the time to go into the full story now but bob lazar's a a former engineer scientist nuclear physicist all sorts of weird and wonderful things happened in his life and he claims to have worked on back engineering et alien spacecraft at area 51 s4 people should check that out however You've, you've spent some amount, amount of time with him, Jeremy. Do you understand why there is still a lot of division when it comes to Bob's story?
0: Oh, absolutely. I understand why there's still a lot of division. If, if, I, if I wasn't in the position that I am, or I have talked with everybody, again, 99% of it not on camera, or on camera but not released, yeah, I would have the same questions as most people. I mean, most people. Some people, they just want to dilute, you know, his uh, persona and they want to try to create something that's not true about him. But the, the majority of people have legitimate questions. Look, I wish I could answer all of them. I, I can't. And, and not that I don't know the information, but that, that's up to Bob. So I have spent a lot of time with Bob. He, he has become a friend over all of this time. And I'll tell you something that I, that I hope really strikes people. I didn't come into this, you know, thinking there was some thing I want to prove. I I went into this just saying, is it true? Is Bob Lazar telling us the truth? I no longer have the luxury of disbelief. I I don't expect you to. I don't expect everybody else to. What I wanted to do in my film is just kind of show who he was as a person. The closer you get to the inner circle of friends and family and wife and, and mom and dad and everybody w- with Bob Lazar, as well as the people that you reach out to that'll speak off record and some on record, you come to realize that Bob Lazar, who he is today, is somebody that tells you the truth. He, he doesn't have time to lie to you. He could have made up a better story is what he said. A- and also, I think in some element, he, he regrets coming forward. with with George Knapp in 1989 because it threw his life upside down. And again, whether people want to believe that or not, it's inconsequential to me because I've seen it firsthand. I've been able to to talk with everybody involved. I, I know that the closer I got into Bob's life, the more you realize who he is. Bob Lazar is telling you like it is. He is being straight with you. He did the work he said he did. At Area 51, Site S4, there, was, there is a location that used to be active. I don't know if it is now. And he worked on the things that he said he did. Now, how we get there in the court of public opinion, that, that's up to everybody else. You know, We'll see where that goes. But uh, just from a personal perspective, if that means anything to you, you know, I set out to find out, is it true? And it is true. Yeah,
1: I, I can I can understand that. I've sat across from people, whether it's professionally or just personally, and just in speaking to them, you get a sense, don't you, that human intuition of, yeah, they're legitimate. No, they're not, and I'm not sure. I I personally find elements of Bob's story fascinating, and I definitely believe him. There are elements that I want to believe, and, and without further evidence, I have to kind of sit on the fence. Yeah. However, I want to ask you, even having spent that time and believing Bob, are there any elements of his story that you still find difficult to believe or fully understand?
0: Right. So it's it's really not a matter of belief for me anymore. You know, I've been able to not... This wasn't just a sense I got from Bob over the years. I, I have... So George Knapp already did just a, an extraordinary amount of work. So did Bob. Bob was trying to get like Los Alamos to admit his, his roles and his work there. And and they all, I have letters that, that that Bob wrote to Los Alamos and got official responses back. Just trying to prove the basics of who he was. So for me, it's not a matter of belief anymore. It's not a matter of like reading somebody socially and trying to see does he seem like he's legitimate. There, there are too many aspects of his story that we can prove that show if anybody hears those facts, especially from him, and then are able to corroborate those. You don't, you know, you don't have a leg to stand on from a point of debunking. Of course there, this is called, you know, Lazar land. Everything with Lazar is, is fascinating. It's, it's strange because there's obviously elements that uh, of individuals that would try to dissuade you for whatever reason that, that he's being honest with you. So Everything on this journey with that film has been, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And then finally you get something you can sink your teeth into. And look, I think this is always going to be a debate. I think until there's this moment that absolutely vindicates him, this is always going to be a debate, which is kind of exciting. I learn new things every day about, about Bob from him and also from the public, you know, there are elements of his story that are difficult to believe, but that does not mean that they are untrue. And so, so there are also aspects that are, that are not yet public, and I think for really good reason. I mean, he's uh, been able to show certain things to certain people that help validate his story. I think he could fully validate his story if he, if he wanted to. I think he could. I know he could.
1: Do you foresee that moment of vindication coming in the future or even near future?
0: I I don't know, like for who? Like, so why do we vindicate Peep? Is it for us or is it for him? Like he has a beautiful life now. He loves where he's at. You know, he's happy that people are starting to accept and hear his story on a mass popular culture scale, but he's not happy for himself. He's happy that the information is now out Two people that can really start to understand it. So, you know, I do believe that there, that story has yet to be written. There is more. And and I do believe that there will be other elements of vindication for Bob Lazar. I'm sure of that. However, the motivation for that, you know, who, who is it coming from? Is, is it the public's curiosity or, or is it from Bob himself? I, I think Bob is uh, fine with whatever you believe.
1: Well, that uh, that story, we're going to come back to Bob and listen to our questions. Um, but like you say, there's a story for Bob Lazar that one day might be written in the form of a movie. And Hollywood itself has a huge influence, at cinema, television, whatever you want to call it, on the public perception of UFOs. It does. What sort of role do you see Hollywood TV playing in this disclosure process or whatever you want to call it?
0: Yeah, well, we have this incredible opportunity now as filmmakers or even aspiring filmmakers. And even, you know, with with podcasts in written form, information is instantly created and generated and pushed out to the whole world at all time. And everybody can pick through it with a fine tooth comb using Mr. Google. So it's a really exciting time to be a creative person, to be an artist, to be a filmmaker I think that film itself is one of the most powerful mediums. It has been powerful in my life uh, to be able to hear stories, but also tell stories visually and whatnot. So there's a real responsibility in a way with documentary work to, to get it right and to, to move the needle forward. There seems to be this great opportunity that we can all seize in trying to put information forward in that medium. And I enjoy it. I love filmmaking. I am so inspired by filmmaking. So if we get this information, whatever it might be with, about UFOs and whatnot, into TV shows, into movies, into podcasts, into newsprint, that starts the conversation. So we have the ultimate power. We really do. As individuals, as creative individuals, we have the ultimate power now to tell our story or to tell the story of others so I'm very hopeful that we can use you know the the medium of film to to really inspire people
1: do you see that medium being detrimental at all depending on how it's portrayed and how UFOs how ETs how aliens how the arrivals you know anything any parts of that movie can be detrimental to the subject
0: Yeah. So obviously you can use any medium that has power for negative or for good. You can use it as propaganda. You can use it to twist public awareness, to alter consensus reality. So that's why I said there is a responsibility in it. It depends what you're trying to say. So yeah, obviously in cinema, there are things that can be detrimental. However, uh, back to the opportunity it really depends on the person that's making the content that's editing the content what what is the agenda what is the goal right now we've seen in cinema mostly aggressive ets right this idea that you know independence day style invasion and we've got great movies like et or close encounters but but even those they they create these indelible images in our mind. And then, you know, we need to, as society, look at that and start asking questions. But I look, it's fun. Creating cinema is fun. This is so cool when you can share and show people what it is that you've uh, built. And I, I, I think there's more opportunity than there is detriment.
1: Do you think Hollywood, in your opinion plays an active role in in the potential disclosure process rumors where steven spielberg had an inside knowledge creating close encounters of the third kind with the the look of the the ufos the movement and even the, the little gray beings themselves have you got any inside knowledge or just opinion on that
0: yeah well well clearly there is um Consulting that is done with certain filmmakers and the films that they're creating, so i I happen to know personally that liaisons from the United States Navy worked directly with uh James Cameron on a number of his movies. I actually know some of the people that were involved in um, kind of influence not influencing but educating and bringing in elements into these films, like very famously, and this is something that Twitter gets all, they get all wrong. But uh, this idea that in Close Encounters, there was this hand scanner that Lazar used. It's the exact same hand scanner. This is, uh, it was an actual product that was used mostly at Area 52, but widespread on the Nellis Air Force Base at the time. And it was brought into that movie in like this flash second to show, you know, look, The the people say, oh, that's where Bob saw it. He must have saw it in that movie. You know, nobody recognized what was going on in that movie till way later when I released my film. But there's way more to it. The revelation of that was that this hand scanner was indeed, and now we know and has been proved that it was in use at the Nellis Air Force Base at the time Bob Lazar said it wasn't just something that was picked out of a movie. This is something that was actually used on base in very top secret programs. And I've spoken to a number of people that had to use it and also a number of people that never saw it because they weren't in those programs. So that's an example of this seeding of information that goes into movies. You know, and this is something that you will see in big budget productions where they do have consultants, intelligence consultants from our military and armed services. So yeah, I think there's like Easter eggs everywhere when it comes to film and UFOs.
1: I asked Luis Elizondo what his favourite UFO movie was, you know, given what he knows. And he said at the time he'd only just recently seen it, but he thought Close Encounters of the Third Kind was was pretty accurate in terms of certain things that he saw within that film. Have you got an opinion on, given who the people you've spoken to, the sources you have, any movie you've seen where you've went, hmm, that's that's pretty close to the bone?
0: Oh, I know for sure The Abyss is a movie that was uh, highly informed by the actual information we have about uh, the UFO phenomenon.
1: I just watched that again uh, in, the la- in the last few months. Uh, anything particular that stands out for you within that movie?
0: Well, I, I think generally speaking that there are or there is a lot of UFO activity that comes in and out of our oceans. This is something that is true. And so there's an element to that film that is edging upon a reality that's super important, which is that if these are transmedium vehicles, you know, descending from above our uh, atmosphere down into our atmosphere, and then as transmedium vehicles going down into the water, This is something that is widely known by those who are involved in UAP and UFO projects for the United States military, that craft do descend and ascend uh, from the water uh, in numerous places.
1: Okay. Curious on that one, why do you think these objects, with the leaning recently being that there's potentially a lot of activity in the water. Catalina Islands is one of those locations a lot of people speak of. Yes. But these objects are also tracked going into the atmosphere and above and going into space. Why do you think, do you have an opinion, these objects seem to be in space, then the air, then underwater?
0: Right. So we're kind of moving to a much larger location, which is you know where do these craft come from? Have they been here this whole time? Are they terrestrial, but in some way, some sort of breakaway civilization technology that we have somehow lost? Have they been here with us all along? Are they interdimensional? Are they intratemporal? Are they extraterrestrial? I mean, it's like there's so many. I don't know the answer. Maybe all of them are correct. I don't know the answers to that. Uh, However, this idea of how they are descending. Let's say with the Tic Tac, you case from 80,000 feet down to sea level without a sonic boom like that, right? How is that happening? The movement of the Tic Tac, how is that happening? All of that is related to this. The craft themselves, when they have been analyzed, they do typically have some sort of seating arrangement. They're they they, they occupied often. And so this is something that makes you think, okay, people are sitting in there and they're traveling. They're also designed with the propulsion systems where they could be interstellar. So what does that even mean if you have gravity wave amplifiers, right? So what that means is they can travel large distances. So all of this kind of adds up to the idea they may be coming from somewhere else and that we can see that by the the actual design of the craft Uh, With that said, we don't really know definitively. However, that scan volume of the spy one radar that caught him at 80,000 feet, that's the height of the scan volume. I happen to know that there are other visual reconnaissance systems that were picking up these Tic Tac UFOs for about nine days and that these other systems, higher fidelity, were able to capture them. Not descending from eighty thousand feet, but ascending or descending from above. So it makes you wonder where are they coming from, right?
1: Yeah, I believe some of the rumors are that there are some systems up and down the coast that track missiles potentially coming in and out of the atmosphere. That, that is may correct. have picked up some of those objects coming in.
0: That is definitively correct.
1: Um, on on those events, you talk about the Nimitz, the Princeton, the you leaked, not leaked, but you provided us footage that was given to you anonymously from the Omaha, the Russell, which was pretty convincing. So there's a few questions I've got for you on those. First off, you did say on Coast to Coast on the 27th of March that more footage was coming out. When can we expect more footage to be made available?
0: Okay, so let, let's talk about that footage for, for a moment. So I obtained and released right from from information that was given to me footage that I validated. I made sure that that I looked at the information. I checked it with multiple sources. I went deep to make sure this is credible information. Again, it was then confirmed by our Pentagon in an unusual move. Remember, it was like three of my four videos, they confirmed and all of a sudden on the last one, they didn't. There's a reason for that, right? But uh, to your original question, which I, I hear all the time, like, it, do you have more footage and are you going to release it? I've already said I have a lot more footage that I've just started releasing and that yes, I am going to. Now, some people get upset. What is the delay? Well, look, there's a couple of things. First of all, this is a very modern case that we're talking about. And, and and the footage is not just from this case, but a lot of the footage that I think is very important could be from active war zones, from unacknowledged bases with with agencies that I can't just, you know, look, I'd like to continue doing this. I don't want to cross the line legally, and I do definitely not want to go to jail for something. So this is something that I need to be sure that I can release these responsibly to the public. Also, I need to make sure to protect sources That is A, number one, even if a source doesn't protect themselves, a lot of the people that I speak with are still active. The majority of people I speak with are still active. So the whole idea here is how do you do something responsibly, socially responsibly, but provide the world something that then will move the ball forward. A lot of that is timing. A lot of that is presentation. And a lot of that is making sure, taking the time to make sure that everything you have isn't a bear trap. You know, that somebody's not trying to give you something so that you'll end up, uh, you know, putting out false information later as a way to, to, to alter your, you know, the perception of people of how you that information. All of that is important. Uh, there's, there, there's a lot of games being played here. So the answer is yes. There is a lot more footage. Yes, I have that footage. Yes, I will be revealing and putting out that footage but also, yes, I'm going to make sure it's perfectly vetted, that it is in the, my legal right to do so as a journalist under shield law, and that the individuals involved with obtaining and providing me footage, documents, whatever, that that's not something that would blow back on them because that would be horrible. That'd be horrible for everybody. And that's not the goal here. The goal here is to move the ball forward appropriately.
1: Touching on one of those reasons that videos can't be released, I know. In speaking to someone who, who knows what they're talking about, uh, a recent example would be if the a US aircraft filmed a UAP. That's great. Let's see the footage. However, if it's filmed over Russian airspace where that aircraft was not supposed to be, that's a reason that isn't even related to the maybe the big fifty foot shiny How UAP. How did you
0: hear about that?
1: Well, yeah. You, so you uh,
0: are you are one hundred percent correct. How did you hear
1: about that? I was just told that location can be a big issue and not necessarily what's on the footage.
0: Well, to expand on that a little bit, look, I I, I don't work for the government. I I don't take my cues from the government. I I don't have clearances. I don't have NDAs, right? Uh, However, sometimes as journalists, you are able to, again, obtain information, maybe things that maybe you shouldn't see. I don't know. You know that that's a gray area because there's are certain specifics where you can look at something or, or you can't. I know them. So there were numerous UFOs that were filmed in locations that are sensitive, and it's not even about the UFO, but it's a, it's about the location. So imagine there's a classified briefing where UFOs are filmed over Russian warships. But again, like you said, we're not supposed to be there, and our capability to film that is not supposed to be known. That's a really difficult piece of footage to get out to the public.
1: One piece of footage that everyone talks about and wants to know of, or once released, is the 23-minute video. Um, you've no doubt heard about this. I would ask, first off, have you seen it?
0: So I'm going to pass on that because that's not something that I consider that I have direct knowledge on.
1: Okay. On the video itself, what sort of videos could the US government be holding that can make it so explosive? We've heard about, you know, 23 minutes of sci-fi and what sort of things do you think they may have filmed just in speaking to sources and such that they're holding back?
0: Sure. So first of all, they're not holding it back the, the, they're never intending to release it. It's, it's not just holding it back. Like, you know, they're, they're, this is a lot of this footage is classified because of the weapon systems themselves, right? So when you're talking about, you know, forward-looking infrared, you know, FLIR pods, a lot of this information is about our capability. So I, I, there's no holding back. None of this, none of this is coming out unless the public engages Ask questions, works with representative government, pushes forward. And for me, the biggest thing I think will come is when people uh, provide me footage that, that probably they shouldn't. But again, as a journalist, I am protected by shield law and I still need to walk a fine line. But there is, and this is not just from sources, there is high fidelity imagery of UFOs that can and probably will be put out to the public in some way in the future. Uh, However, I don't think any one piece of footage is going to be like the nail in the coffin in public opinion about UFOs. It, It just doesn't work that way. Not one photo, not one video is going to convince everybody of the totality of what it is human beings have been experiencing so this idea that proof for the world is going to come in the form of a video or a photo, its it, it, just, it just does not work that way. I, I don't see it working that way. But to your point, there is high fidelity imagery from our... We have incredible reconnaissance systems, not even just the ones that are on board ships, but we have space-based reconnaissance systems, like the geospatial... Uh, intelligence agency. That is an incredible agency that does pick up things all the time, and they have incredible optics. So I think the most important thing we can get is corroborative video evidence that ties directly in to direct witness testimony. Now, I'll remind you, one of the things that George Knapp and I did was provide the world something they had not had before, that they had always been belly aching for. That I, as a fan of the UFO topic, I was excited to see this, which is like you have a huge UFO event in 2019, right? Over 100 UAP were swarming our Navy warships. Not all of them were the same in look and style, but it was a coordinated effort, a sort of a display, some would say, of power. But what you have there from what we released is not only forward-looking infrared FLIR footage, right? You also have IR, so that's like the green video of the triangle from angle of observation, actually pyramid. And we also have deck footage and radar. So this is now... Corroborative video evidence from a known event that got the attention of our Senate, got the attention of our Congress, got the attention of the head of the Navy and the head of Homeland Security and Department of Defense, Pentagon. Everybody was buzzing about this, right? All of this footage is corroborative video evidence. As an example, the last piece of footage that I put out was from the deck of the USS Omaha, and it was just like video footage in inky darkness, but of lights. So the reason why this footage is powerful is because when you see it with all the others, you can't just say these are anomalies or glitches that are in the camera systems or in the radar systems. You now have illuminated objects. So when you try to pick things apart to the point of absurdity, you're going to miss the point. The point is to look at a, again, corroborative video evidence that will link with eyewitness testimony but again a lot of those people are still on active deployment so that's something that you know maybe it'll take some time but we build the case over time that is the most powerful evidence is when everything comes together and you've got a lot of data
1: the the UFO community cries out for that data because we we hear about you know one source isn't ideal whether it's a picture a video uh, a testimony you need more to it. And here you come along and you release this information and we have multiple data points. We have the Snoopy team's recording through the, um, the the scope. I'm going to ask you to talk about that absurdity. One, why was this not an event of advanced drones buzzing the US Navy? And two, I'll ask you to comment on why was the image of the pyramid not just an aircraft that the Boca as we now know that word, has become infamous, um, was just making it look like a triangle.
0: Okay, so you know, let's take our time with this and, and let's kind of break it down a little bit. Uh, you did say something at the beginning of your question which I thought was uh, important to address. What was the original words you said?
1: In regards to the UFO community crying out for data and having more than one source.
0: It was right after that.
1: I was riffing that one off the top of my head. So. Okay,
0: okay, okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, that that one wasn't written down. Okay, so, gosh, it was important. So I'll have to I have to go back to that. It, was, it was a word you used, and it was really important to delineate that that difference there. But uh, okay, so let, let's take this slow. So, what was the first part of your question?
1: Yeah. So, uh, why is this not just an event where advanced adversarial drones right. buzz the U.S. Navy?
0: Okay. Right. So this idea that these were just conventional drones or even just advanced drones, you know, from what? From from our own Navy or from another country? From or, China. You, oh, okay. Oh, my Lord. So that is one of the greatest, ridiculous things I've ever heard. And you also just want to know about the mental gymnastics of the uh, debunkers and the crazy absurdity that they come up with, including the bokeh effect, which is absolutely yes. ridiculous. Okay, so why these weren't drones. I mean, there's a hundred plus reasons, but the the main thing here is we have our Navy. First of all, I've talked with numerous people on board these ships that had direct visual uh, on these craft, but, but also the people that wrote the reports and designated the word drone, plus people that were in charge of fighting these ships. They're like the top dogs on the ships. The... Everybody across the board. This was a highly unusual event series. Everybody was kind of scrambling, trying to figure out how do we deal with this because the, the the triangle of defense or of kinetic action, as they say, to to take kinetic action or defensive action, it wasn't met. Intent, opportunity, capability. Those are the the three points, and with these unknowns, it's difficult to to really discern. What level of defense should be taken? This is right off the coast of, of the United States in the Pacific Ocean, not far from some of our greatest military bases, you know, San Diego, whatnot. So this event series was even admitted to by the head of the Navy, saying we we still don't know where these were from. But I want to I want to backtrack a little bit. The information that I put out, I did put out two slides that were part of a classified briefing, but were themselves not classified. And that's really important. I'm not putting out classified information. Although it was contained within a a classified briefing, what I put out was not classified. So if you read those slides, like one of the things says triangular by angle of observation, but understand this is part, I'll say, of a presentation it was classified now if journalists were to be able to see this presentation and to read associated documentation or whatever these craft over the USS Russell were described as pyramid in shape in fact there was a whole section trying to figure out what is ours what craft might have that signature that is ours, definitively, anybody that has access to classified uh, servers who can find the, these presentations, I'll say, it is absolutely clear to them that not only were these pyramid shaped this is how it was described, but additionally, everything we have in the United States military arsenal was ruled out. There was an extensive investigation done into what we have, And specifically, one of the sensitivities is is the area, the area where this is filmed. A lot of that information will never come out because there are sensitive installations all around this area. So these are not ours. Okay, That's first of all about the drone thing. If they they were our drones and we're doing then then none of this would have happened. None of this. And and if somebody saw a black project, they would have been debriefed. They would have been signed NDAs. and, And that would have been the end of it. You never would have heard about it. Additionally, where did they come from? Like who launched a hundred plus drones on 10 plus of our Navy warships? Who did that? Where did they launch from? What are the capabilities? How, how long's the battery life with those bright lights? And then where they, did they descend back to? All of this was intensely investigated. They cannot figure this out. So The idea that China would come in with some version of a DJI drone or or even something more powerful, it's absolutely 100% absurd. It is absurd to the point of, I don't know what's a word greater than absurd, ridiculous. So additionally, the the flight characteristics and the, the kind of illumination of these things so I doubt people have, but if you've talked with any direct eyewitnesses, like I have, right? No rotors, no props, no sound. Also, there, it's reported to me directly that from, let's say the USO's Russell, that some of these had unique flight characteristics. So you look at these uh, images of the briefing that I released and they give it to you word for word, triangular by angle of observation. So why did they say by angle of observation? Because they're, they're telling you what you're seeing right there in those slides and that video, but indeed it was picked up and understood and observed to be pyramidal in shape. So I'm not going to uh, be able to give you definitive proof today that that's what all the classified briefing said. I'm not going to be able to give you definitive proof today that that's what the eyewitnesses said. Uh, however, I think in the future we will get that. Now also remember, when you're looking through FLIR and you have footage of what looks like a you know, spherical or egg-shaped object that does appear to descend into the water. Look, these, these are estimated to be about 12 to 14 feet in diameter. With FLIR, forward-looking infrared, it's a thermal signature So if you've ever used FLIR, which I have, high-grade FLIR, you can see propulsion. You can see rotors. You can see exhaust. You can see plumes of heat. What you're seeing in that video was the totality of the shape of those objects. that's, That's what it looks like. And so you have to understand the type of camera that's being used and what it is you should see at that distance when things are moving, accelerating, stopping. It is believed that object is transmedium. And then it is also believed that that object that was captured on film, which again, there were dozens of around that ship, but there was hundreds in total, descended into the water. And they even uh, dispatched a submarine to look for wreckage or the craft itself and, and unsuccessfully. And again, that's something that I, I know and reported on. So when you're looking at the totality of, 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 this event, what we know is that these are craft that behave, although there's not like extreme maneuvers caught on camera, there were extreme maneuvers that you'll hear more about, uh, later. But you see these objects, and you catch them on radar. You see them in thermal, and you see them in IR, and from deck footage, and and some of them dropped into the water, and we and there was one, you know, caught on camera, and that's the footage that is now famous that you've seen. Do you want me to jump right into the to the bullshit bouquet uh, argument?
1: Just before you do, um, is the working on seeing that later something that you're dealing with that you're you're hoping to get out?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm working my ass off to make sure that, that more information comes out. Yeah, that more footage will be revealed. Yeah, I'm, that's, that's a big focus of my life. I mean, again, I do have a day job. You know, I do, this is UFOs is not my entire life, but it is uh, a lot of what I focus on. So, yeah, I'm working feverishly to make sure that everything comes out at the right time for everybody.
1: So let's talk about the bokeh and just a quick shout out to listener Terry, because I know this was something he brought up and others did as well, but uh, on Twitter, and you said yourself, great question. So it was put in there. So Terry, here's your answer.
0: Right. Okay. So the bullshit bokeh thing that's been going around, right? First of all, you know, you have to understand that the the sources of this kind of, you know, idea are people that, that have always made a point to exclude information. Right. Rather than look at the totality of that information, it's like you can say, well, there's planes in the sky. You know, well, one is like a model plane this big and the other is like a 747. But look, they're both planes. And so everything must be a model plane. I mean, it's absolutely um, you have to look at the the way people argue things to understand the validity. Just because something is uh, round and orange doesn't mean it is an orange. So specifically I have right here. So this is um, a this is a, a PVS fourteen I think that's the the title. Um, let me look at one second. Let me just give a pause here. Yeah, this is yeah this is the current military deployment. So PVS fourteen. Okay, so check it out. I have the exact one. So this is a PVS fourteen. Right. This is standard issue since. Two thousand for all our armed services. Of course, there's binoculars as well. This is a monocular, and it has a little cap on it with a little pinhole, circular pinhole, right? And that's what's used if you want to open it up during daytime or you want to refine the light at night. Importantly, these have dimmer switches, so you don't need any kind of, you know, forced aperture on it because it has a dimmer switch. Uh, This exact model is what is used by the majority of our armed services since 2000 to this day, right? There's nothing on this that requires a false iris or an iris that you're putting on it as an addition. Again, it's got a dimmer switch. So, Oh, I remember the thing back that you said earlier, you said Snoopy teams. Yes. Right. So actually, uh, who was on, let's say the USS Omaha, it was a Viper team, which is, which is a, you know, it's similar to the Snoopy team, but what they do is they deal with actionable events. So they deal with events. It's not just like documenting where they are. They're like, there's something we need to find out what it is. Is it a threat? Does it have opportunity? What's its capability? So that's a Viper team. So I know it's a small little nuance, but I said it in the first reporting. I want to make sure people understand. No that's thanks. It. Yeah. That's the difference w- w- with the Viper teams. Now, when it comes to what was filmed on the USS Russell, there's obviously a a camera being used and filming through a night vision. So it's filming through a PBS-14 monocular. It it could have been PBS-15 binocular, but it's it's the same thing, and I'm – highly confident that it was the monocular okay but when you have this and and you and you point it up to the sky there is no person that would ever um you you can't even these come with the actual aperture here like the little light you know dimmer right there but also a a a dimmer on the side they check them out when they come out onto deck and they're going to be documenting something so they have to go like register check it out bring it up onto deck so when they're filming through this, they're filming through the monocular, you have, what you're seeing is just exactly what's being shown through that monocular. There, there's, no, uh, there's no false, I call it a false aperture. There's no additional aperture to it. it. It's completely unneeded. You can go online and try to find like a really cheap version that would not be given to the Viper team, would not be given to Snoopy teams. This is the model. That is used by our armed services. So, with that said, the idea that you can create a look of a bouquet by like taking tape and putting it all over your lens—of of course, you can. You can do that if you want to. That's not what happened. Now, additionally, there's further investigation into and further types of optics that are used when you're tracking, you know, these things around our warships. Can you imagine UFOs, tra- you know, around our warships? How many eyes are going to be trying to discern what's going on? I mean, from radar to FLIR to IR to Viper teams. So it wasn't just like one piece of footage. Now these objects that were on USS Russell they were different. They and again in, in classified briefings that, that maybe there will be parts that come out. They talk about them as being pyramidal in shape. That they tracked the USS Russell. They stopped over the tail of the USS Russell, three of them in particular at one point, right? And all of this was accumulated into data and pushed through the system to get up, hopefully, to people that would really be able to look at this and investigate it further. And it was to some degree. A lot of the footage was not um, in the hands of the Pentagon when it should be, when I released it. So it was something that happened that all of that information was given to the Pentagon just prior to my release to make sure they had it because it was filmed by our military, right? Trying to do everything right. So this idea that there is some sort of tape on the lens or there is some sort of attachment to the PBS 14 monocular, it's absolutely an absurdity. This is not how these – objects are taken out when they're taken up and and used on deck it's just not this is they're not personal objects for people
1: i appreciate that breakdown jeremy and that's for those that are quite technically apt they'll appreciate that as well i'm sure um so we've not heard the last of that that event and you're quite confident more information hopefully will come out through yourself or other channels in the future
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I I know for sure that more information will be coming out on this and all of the events of, of 2019. Yeah, I know for sure.
1: I'm going to move on before we get to listener questions. Uh, something I want to reach out and talk to you about, Jeremy, is cataclysms. This is something that came up in the vernacular in the last year. John Ramirez, ex-CIA, Ross Coulter, uh, Frank Milburn and others have talked about hearing from sources that there have been impending cataclysms. On the horizon, they've heard about when it comes to UAP. Is this something you've ever come across or heard about from your sources?
0: quite steampunk like Alice was playing bass for the parliament of fuck the little fucker hovered right outside of my window and when I shoved out the screen he made it an issue I don't think he expected me to see his ass but I'd had some
1: champagne and smoked to the world
0: meditate game of fate full on meta and I can't imagine how it could have been any better I got to the top of the stairs and there he was like you awake I was about to abduct you cuz Jump jumped back and nearly kissed myself And I climbed out the window after the elf And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head And everything was weird and everything was red and I called up my boys, they thought this was noise They thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys They thought it was my problems And they think I should scare therapy And I don't know what it- Because it doesn't really scare
1: me